Google Search allows humans to find and access information across the web. A human enters an unstructured query into the search box. The search engine provides several links as a result, and the human clicks on one of those links. That link brings up a web page, which is a set of unstructured data. Humans can read and understand news articles, videos, and Wikipedia pages. Humans can understand the results of a search engine. Google Search solves the problem of organizing and distributing all of the unstructured data across the web for humans to consume. Diffbot is a company with a goal of solving a related but distinctly different problem. How to derive structure from the unstructured web, how to understand relationships within that structure, and how to allow machines to utilize those relationships between different entities across the unstructured web through APIs. Mike Tung is the founder of Diffbot. He joins the show to talk about the last decade that he has spent building artificial intelligence applications, from his research at Stanford to a mature, widely used product in Diffbot. I have built a few applications using the Diffbot APIs. I encourage anyone who is a tinkerer or a prototype builder to play around with it. Diffbot is an API for accessing web pages as structured data. It's an API for a knowledge graph. Diffbot is really cool, and I recommend checking it out. Diffbot crawls the entire web. It parses websites, it uses NLP and NLU to comprehend those pages, and it uses probabilistic estimations to draw relationships between the entities on those pages. It's an ambitious product, it's an ambitious set of ideas, and Mike has been working on it for a long time. I really enjoyed our conversation. I want to mention we recently launched a new podcast, Fintech Daily. Fintech Daily is about payments and cryptocurrencies and trading and the intersection between finance and technology. You can find it on fintechdaily.co or on Apple or Google Podcasts. And we're looking for other hosts who want to participate. If you're interested in becoming a host for Fintech Daily, send us an email, host at fintechdaily.co. And I hope you enjoy Fintech Daily. And I also hope you enjoy this episode. Mike Tung, you are the founder of Diffbot. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Diffbot is a set of tools and APIs that are built around a knowledge graph that you have constructed within the company. And this knowledge graph is the result of taking unstructured data on the web and putting structure around this data. Let's start off by discussing the difference between unstructured and structured data. Can you define those two terms? Sure. So unstructured data, you know, are things like documents, web pages. They are things that are created primarily for human beings to read. You know, humans read and understand web pages and make sense out of them. They convert it to meaning or structure. And structured data is essentially data that's, you know, think of like a relational database. You know, it's data that's broken into different fields where each field has, you know, a certain type and a value, you know, for example, a person might be an entity that has a name, they have a job title, they might have an employer, a street address. So actually, we refer to this as knowledge. So we make a distinction between just raw data, which is 
just a sequence of symbols and knowledge, which is something that's more meaningful. It's, it's more structured. It's more semantic, if I can use that word. It's basically like a statement about the entities in the world. So as an example, if you took a document like a news article, then you could process that article and provide structure to it. Give an example of some kind of structure that you might add to a news article. Yeah. So actually, most of the information on the web starts out as structured. Most web pages these days are you know, dynamic web pages. They're not handwritten HTML anymore that you might write in an editor or using Microsoft front page. They're documents that are generated from some underlying database, right? So the data is sort of born structured. And then people use something like PHP or ASP, you know, or your favorite front-end language to add a bit of styling and a little bit of positioning using HTML and CSS and basically convert it into a document for human consumption. What Diffbot essentially does is it kind of reverse engineers that process. It starts out with a document and gets back into what is that structured database representation. And we do this using uh, artificial intelligence. So we do this by truly reading and understanding uh, the page like a person does, because that's what it's it's meant for, and converting it back into structure. And then we return this back to the developer as a JSON object, which is essentially just a set of keys and values. Yeah, does that make sense? It does. As an example, the way that I have used DiffBot is as an API for getting structured data about URLs. You have some other features that we'll get into later, but this API specifically where I can send an API request to DiffBot with a URL for wikipedia.com slash Steve Jobs, and DiffBot can take that URL, it can look at the web page, and it can extract information from that web page and send it back to me as a JSON object, and it can send information, like a collection, it'll be a collection of fields, as you said, things like, what is the title of this page? What is the, the featured image of this page? What is this page about? What kind of page is this? Is it an article? Is it a product that, that is being purchased? So if I put in a Wikipedia article, like wikipedia.com slash Steve Jobs, what is DiffBot going to return to me in that API response? You really hit the nail on the head. So you know, if, if you're familiar with the traditional way of web scraping, right, or manually creating, you know, a scraper, it, what it involves is basically, you know, using either, you know, something like Scrapey, which is, you know, something in Python, or there are scraping tools written in JavaScript, or it's using one of these visual tools, right, like an import.io or like a Kapow, to essentially create rules for each site, right, using things like CSS and XPath selectors and regular expressions. And, and you know, that's okay if you want to gather information from the, just that one site and create your own sort of homespun crawler. But if you're doing anything at any substantial scale, like across thousands of sites or the entire web, it's not really feasible even to create and maintain rules, right, for all these different sites. If the web page redesigns or changes their layout, then, you know, all of the rules you've created will break, right? This happens on average 15% of the time each week for any sort of rule set you have to maintain. How DiffBot is different is you don't have to write any rules. You just pass in the URL and DiffBot handles all the rest. So how do we do that? The first thing we do is we take the URL that's passed to us um, through the automatic API, which is one of our products, and we basically render it 
in our own web browser that's in our data center. And it's basically running in a virtual machine in that web browser. And the first thing we determine is what kind of page is it, right? Like you alluded to, it might be an article page, it might be a product page, it might be a person page, it might be an image page, it might be an organization or company page, it might be a place page. Um, we found that there are 20 or so different top-level entity or page types that comprise like 98% of the surface area of the web. And so Diffbot can, first of all, determine what kind of page is it? Is it the homepage nav page or is it one of these, what we call leaf pages? Uh, let's say it is an article page. Then what we do is we run computer vision and natural language processing algorithms on the page. We look at all the pixels on the page, you know, what are its colors and fonts, how things are positioned. And just like a person does, we see everything that is visible, you know, from the perspective of what's the rendered document look like. We see everything that's visible from the renderer itself, like the actual uh, internal states of the rendering engine, like the layout, the, the DOM, the um, HTTP conversation that's going on. And we make a determination of what type of page is it, and then we extract the properties or fields of this type. So if it was an article page, we would return back the article's title, its author, its publication date, the clean text of the article, the clean HTML formatted version of the article, the images and captions in the article, as well as the entities that are mentioned in that article, the publication country, any comments to the article. So it's essentially a nearly perfect representation of what was in the database that generated the article. And then the developers can now utilize that information inside their apps or their business processes. So an example of an applications that use the article API are Instapaper, so it's for reading articles later. Snapchat, which has a Discover Stories feature, and like DuckDuckGo, which has like these article tiles in their search engine. So if I am building an application where I would want to save articles for reading later, for example, so I use uh, I use Pocket. I think that's kind of like Instapaper. For all I know, Pocket uses Diffbot. So Instapaper, for example, if I'm saving an article for later. Why would I want to use Diffbot in this case? Why would I want to use a service to, to just get an API call that's going to give me the structured information rather than just scraping that page myself? Why is it so much easier by doing it through an API request? Yeah, so before Instapaper adopted Diffbot, they had basically a homegrown system that had different rules for each news site out there. Right. And if your site that you wanted to save an article from wasn't in that set, uh, then you would have like a very subpar experience. And they actually crowdsourced the creation of these rules. So their, their users could actually go in and, and like edit these rules when they, when they broke. It was like a huge maintenance effort. Right. So you need to, you need to think about a typical article page. There are a whole bunch of things that you don't want to include inside your read it later experience. Right. You don't want all the ads uh, that are surrounding that article, you know, inside that article view, you don't want the, the pop-up and the cookie prompt. Sometimes articles are multi-paged, right? So you'd have to like click the next button through all like 10 pages to actually get the full article. So there are many of these encumbrances to having to maintain and write all these scraping rules, right? So with Diffbot, since it uses machine learning, it does it automatically and it's able to recognize these visual patterns very robustly with a high degree of accuracy, right? Over 97% precision on this. It, it's it's much easier. So it's you don't you don't have to do that anymore. You just pass in the URL, you get back the response, and you save it in your database, and you can use it for later. So when I send 
a URL to Diffbot. Maybe it's wikipedia.com slash Steve Jobs. And you receive that API request. Are you going to the the Wikipedia page on the fly, or are you hitting some cached version of the URL that you've gotten from crawling the web and saving the page and saving the structured information about the page? Uh, when you use the article API or the what we call the analyze API, you're generally requesting the page on demand. It's not a cached version generally because uh, unless you know it was recently requested, like very very recently, that's because you know the articles do change, right? And products do change their prices. You want the, the most up-to-date information. Right. So you're mentioning products. That's another utility for this URL API. So I could put in a URL for amazon.com slash toilet paper or bounty toilet paper or whatever. And Diffbot is going to give me information about the price and all these other kinds of things. And so I can I can build applications on top of that as well. So... Before we we go a little bit deeper, can you give any other applications that people are building with these APIs and how these APIs are are used more broadly? Yeah, we have uh, quite a diverse customer base. So uh, if you're interested in hearing sort of like, you know, how we we built this out over time, we have generally people building consumer applications and people building enterprise applications, right? In the consumer space, I already mentioned individual apps like Instapaper, Snapchat, ShopSpring, that utilize, you know, like our article data, our product data, our people data, our organization data. Uh, we have major consumer search engines like Microsoft Bing, Yandex, DuckDuckGo, e-commerce search engines like Amazon, eBay, Walmart. And then, and, and, you know, also include in the search engines like these voice assistants as well that require lots of structured information and knowledge. On the enterprise side, we have people that use it for all these different kinds of functions you might imagine that knowledge workers need uh, information for. So like for sales, you can query our databases and get sales leads for recruiting. You can help find talents for marketing uses. You can uh, build a clearer picture of your customers, understand your content for content marketing, your large brand, like say you're a Nike, you can monitor all the places on the web that sell Nike shoes and determine, you know, if anyone's like breaking the MSRP or, how well that product is received. With structured data, it allows you know you to analyze these um, much more easily. Business intelligence and kind of Wall Street applications. So you might want some of the structured data to to build uh, quantitative trading algorithms. You might want the news data on organizations and entities. You know if you're an analyst trying to track a particular sector, you know as well as government. So just trying to improve national security. Indeed. The reason I'm I'm asking for these different use cases is because when I first came across Diffbot, I was like, "This is so flexible!" And the uh, just the general idea of like I use Google Search all the time, and I I put in kind of a, a search query, and I'm looking for a bunch of additional information about that uh, that entity that I'm searching for. And it almost feels like Diffbot is that for programmatic information in some ways. Yeah. Like if I want to, it's, it's such a flexible way of building on the web and building on the structured data that can be derived from the unstructured web. I mean, much as, you know, when I'm searching for information on the Google search engine, I am inferring structure about those articles that I'm reading but that that has not been t- 
turned into an API, at least as far as I know from Google. So I know Google has something, some kind of knowledge graph thing, but I haven't used it or I haven't, I don't know as much about it as, as I do about DiffBot. So anyway, I'm just, I, I really like what you have built with DiffBot and I think it's very flexible and I'm actually surprised that I don't hear more about applications being built with it, but maybe that's just because it's kind of like a back end sort of tool. Yeah, some people have described DiffBot as kind of like a Google for machines, right? Where Google is more of a search engine for, for humans. We crawl the web like Google, but we go like a, a step deeper, right? Where Google is more like a card catalog where when you type in your query, it returns back basically a set of results, right? Which are pointers to pages to read, right? But ultimately you as a human being, as you're doing research, still have to read those pages, right? To, to read and understand them and get information, right? So we're taking the step deeper of actually analyzing and reading those those documents and converting them into structure and then unifying that information into a knowledge graph, right? So that it's it can be actually actionable, right? Inside intelligent applications. Whereas Google is more of sort of routing, right? Your, your attention to these different places on the web, right? And ranking things that you, you should read, uh, and then, you know, injecting some, some advertising along the way. Right. So the API that we discussed, the information extraction API, where I put in a URL and you extract structured data from it, that's one feature of your products, product offerings. The knowledge graph that you just mentioned is this other one where this is where you're actually building a database. You're you're taking your your knowledge from crawling the internet and parsing it with you know it's I guess you're using the same APIs that you do for API extraction, but you're actually crawling the comprehensive web. You're extracting that structured data, and then you're building relationships between the structured data on those web pages. Tell me more about how your knowledge graph works. Yeah, the mission of our company is to build the first comprehensive database of all human knowledge, right? That's sort of like our North Star, right? But from from day one, you know, we didn't have the resources to crawl the full web. It's kind of a pretty, it's a pretty large endeavor, right? There's only uh, two other US entities that do it, which is it's Google and Bing. So that's why we, we first refined and created a very highly accurate extractor, right? Because that doesn't require building a crawler in this large infrastructure to, to visit the whole web, right? The business model for that is essentially um, developers pay as you go, you know, similar to Twilio, we get like a fraction of a penny every time someone sends us an API call. <laughs> and so we're sort of getting paid and we're analyzing just what the URLs the customer sent us, right? And you can save the data, right? Every time they... Yeah, and so and then we take the structured data, we cache it so that we can use it to retrain, you know, our models, right? So uh, you can imagine over the course of operating the service, we've just honed and honed and got it better than human levels of accuracy. And, you know, processing about a billion URLs per month, you know, over the course of 50 months, we've processed about 50 billion URLs, which is about the size of the useful web. So with just only a little bit of incremental crawling, we could get full coverage of the web, which is what we've done. And so you can imagine applying this automatic classification and an extraction algorithm on every page that's on the surface of the web. And then what do you do? You have all these extractions, right? You're sort of not, not home yet. What we, what we do then is we look at these extractions and we say, which of these extractions are about the same entity, right? So if let's say, you know, like a, an iPhone, you know, iPhone 7 might be sold on the Apple store. It might also be sold at Best Buy. It might be sold on Walmart.com. Those are all referring to the same product, right? Uh, there's different pages about it. Similarly, a person might have, let's say, like a LinkedIn profile, some 
profile on their um, school webpage, some social networking profile it might be mentioned on a blog or in the news, but those are all about the same person entity, right? So we use automatic machine learning techniques, you know, much like a person does, and we try to resolve which of these are the same real world person, place or thing, right? And then we're able to cluster those together. And once we do, then we know, okay, all these extracted information is about the same real world concept, right? It's about the same person or the same product, the same organization. Then we take all those extracted facts and we fuse them together. We calculate the probability of truth of all those facts. And then we sort of build an entity, which is a single JSON object out of all of these. And then we inject these highly confident facts into the knowledge graph. So the knowledge graph represents basically our view of all the, the entities you know, in the universe. And the way that you use it as a developer is different. So instead of having to pass in a particular URL, you know, and then waiting for us to analyze it, you know, on demand, or instead of passing in a domain and waiting for us to crawl the whole domain, you just issue what's called a default query language, DQL query to the knowledge graph. And then it answers uh, that much like a structured search and returns back your results in, in less than a second. I want to comment on that business model. I think it's pretty creative. The idea that because it's expensive to crawl the web for this kind of structured data, you amortized it by standing up a extraction API and then selling that extraction API so that anybody that wants to query a web page and get structured data about it, they pay you a little bit and you get the information from that extraction and it takes a while, but eventually you get to build up a knowledge graph and you get to do it at actually at a profit. Another side benefit of that is we got really good at extraction, right? Because people wouldn't pay us money if it wasn't actually better, right? Than whatever process they were using before or, you know, using human curation, right? Or human gathering of data. So it's sort of a forcing function that forced us to make the technology really good and really robust, right? Because it's it's not like other scraping tools where you, you create rules per site. Literally, someone can pass us a URL from anywhere on the web. It could be written in any language, be in Japanese, German, some languages we've never seen, and we have to extract it perfectly, right? So it's that environment that enabled us to develop the technology and just make it really solid, like, you know, make it industrial grade, that all, all these large companies can use it as performance and highly accurate. While we're on the business side of things, this company is 10 years old, right? You started DiffBot 10 years ago, and I think you've only raised $13 million, which is a lot, but it's it's kind of a small amount for a company that's that's 10 years old, and I believe you're profitable. So it's just kind of interesting. It seems you know antithetical to some ways of structuring their businesses in in Silicon Valley. I'd love to know more about this kind of the story behind your monetization and your your reasoning around fundraising and and kind of the the business side of things. I think we we definitely go against the typical Silicon Valley trend. You know, I've been working on AI since the third grade. And I've been fascinated by this field ever since I can remember. And I, I was um, a PhD student in the Stanford AI lab. So I've been working on this on my own for like a long time. We didn't formally incorporate the company until like 2011 or so. Okay. But the the early period of the company was basically, you know, me sitting alone in a dark room, working out the math and, <laughs> and getting the algorithms to be very accurate, right? And it took a while to get it to like a human level of accuracy. And that's the point sort of when it became commercially viable and when companies would pay to use it. 
we launched on Hacker News, uh, that first developer API, and immediately a bunch of sort of Silicon Valley based developers that worked in companies thought it was interesting and, and started, you know, kind of prototyping with it and using it in some of the uh, applications like uh, for their company. In terms of uh, the funding aspect, so it's really like after launching that, you know, that I figured, hey, we need to actually build a company around this, start hiring, uh, start buying more machines to, to operate this thing and hiring people to help. So I wrote initially probably the, the first version of most of the systems that we use and then hired much smarter people that have come along and made <laughs> things much better. But our, the first uh, round of angel investment we got was from Andy Bechtelstein. He was the first investor in Google and he really saw the vision of it and just kind of led our seed round. And then we recently raised a Series A led by some of the early backers of SpaceX and Tesla. Uh, it's both on both of Elon Musk's board as well as Tencent, which is one of the largest uh, internet companies, and also Sky Dayton, who's the founder of Earthlink. So our, our kind of investors are a little bit non-traditional too. They're all operators, founders that have built tech companies and scaled them. So they are not your typical Silicon Valley kind of Sand Hill Road money manager type of person. Right? They're, they're people that, you know, I just felt complemented my skill set, understood what I was trying to do, had that long, same long-term technical vision I had, and could provide experience that I don't have, right? It's just being kind of a, a new PhD grad. I mean, the advantage of these API kind of businesses, like the Twilio's and the Stripes of the world, my understanding is you just have good unit economics from the beginning because every API request is just, you're like, okay, we just need to charge enough to make money from it. So you, yeah. you're like profitable early on. So I, it probably does let you control your destiny a little bit more, which I guess would explain the you know, seven years on uh, nothing more than, than seed and series A. Well, definitely. Yeah. I'm no expert in what, you know, it makes consumer internet companies popular or successful, but I know with enterprise, we've got like a well-defined technical challenge, right? Which is just getting people accurate and timely data. It's an, ex an existing problem that many businesses have, you know, businesses run on unstructured data and, and information and a huge chunk of what knowledge workers do is just gather and maintain and update. Uh, data right. databases. So we're not trying to convince people of sort of some newfangled, you know, way of doing business <laughs> or, or some, some, we're trying to create some demand that's already there. It's just, yeah. it's up to us to make sure we deliver yeah. on, on accuracy. Yeah. And it's a high bar, right? When you're comparing it against human processes, so that makes it challenging. Definitely. Okay. So I want to get into the engineering. Um, I, I kind of wanted to, even though I know you're, you're, as you just said, like you're not trying to convince anybody but uh, I guess I'm trying to be your hype man because I just think this is a really, really cool product, and especially for kind of how long it's been out there and, and how long you've been working on it. So this knowledge graph that you now have assembled and you now do some crawling around it and you now also offer crawling as a service because you've gotten, much like you're, you, you've built up a core competency in extraction, you've also built up a competency in crawling. So you have this crawler as a service. If, you, if somebody wants to crawl an entire domain, for example, you know, you can help them do that. But in any case, the your your goal, this, I mean, the, the whole extraction and crawling thing is sort of a Trojan horse just to build up a, a knowledge graph of the world. So this knowledge graph, it is like a database. What's the model for querying that database? I mean, do you use a graph database? Do you store it in memory? How is this knowledge graph of the world stored and queried? So just to give you some rough stats, there's about on the order of 10 billion entities in the knowledge graph right now and about a trillion facts and aggregate, which are the, the edges, right? 
the entities are the nodes, the edges are these facts in, in the knowledge graph. So to give you an example, Mike Tung is me. I'm a type person in our knowledge graph. Diffbot is a type organization, and that relation is employed. At, you know, I work at that company. So it's it's quite a, a large database. And it, you know, if you think about most traditional databases, it's the, the information in the database. You know, it's largely human generated. So I think we're going to really push the limits of these large database systems when we have this AI system that's essentially discovering entities and generating them as they, it reads documents on the web. We discover about 150 million entities per month, right? And we haven't really even scaled up the data center yet. So we, when we were thinking about how do we store the knowledge graph, which is essentially the output of this machine learning pipeline, right? The input is the web, which is much larger. And then the output is, is this highly confident, highly accurate information, which is the knowledge graph. How do we store the knowledge graph in a way that's queryable? We evaluated basically like a dozen or so of the, uh, the current off-the-shelf graph databases. And what we found is most of them generally fail or lock up at between 10 million to 100 million entities, depending on which one. And so none of them really met our engineering requirements. We build a new knowledge graph every two days. And so just to load the data into one of these databases would, would take you know weeks, um, but most of them never even got to a point where they loaded 1% uh, of the data. So what we ended up doing is making some compromises. We denormalized our data uh, two edges out and injected them uh, into a key value store. And then what we do is we map the incoming DQL, default query language queries, uh, into queries in, in this store. And that's how we can return results pretty fast. But it's still an area that we're actively researching. Uh, we're keeping in pretty close touch with all these GraphDB vendors, right? Because they all are would be you know pretty interested in being able to host the world's largest knowledge graph and using their system. We would love not to have to build our own graph database, but <laughs> it, we do want to be able to have a design that will scale up to like a quadrillion entities. The model of storing all the entities in a document database where it's denormalized and you can store up to two edges out in, I guess, one of the one of the fields. Did you take a one of those document databases off the shelf, like Cassandra or something? Yeah, we're, we're constantly experimenting with a couple. Cassandra was one we tested, Elasticsearch is another hmm. one we tested, but basically key value stores that can operate on multiple machines, right, is kind of that space. There are some trade-offs to this design, uh, I should mention. So when you just denormalize a couple edges out, that means you can't run a query, you can't run certain kinds of graph queries, at least not using DQL. I mean, you can run these offline in our own development system, but you can't make a query that spans like, you know, three or four tables, right? You can't say, give me a person who worked at that organization or that organization is based in a city where that city is also a place where that per another person lives, right? <laughs> but what we found is at least more than 90% of, you know, kind of our business customers and developer customers don't actually need to write queries that, that span, like join like four tables or, uh, or write queries that have to involve like traversing or, or random walking like a graph. Man, I do not envy these engineering problems. This is, this, that's tough stuff. So by the way, can you explain what denormalization means in this context just because there's pro people listening who don't really understand what oh, yeah. that that means and and why you need to do it and yeah so what denormalization is it's a database term it's a way of making queries faster by making a copy of the information that is one edge out so what, what one edge out you know like if you were in the relational database field 
uh, you have this concept of like primary keys and foreign keys, right? So if you have like a reference to another row and another table, what denormalization would do is make a copy of that other row and put it into your table, right? And so you're duplicating the, the data across all the places where it's referenced, right? So the disadvantage of that is you have data duplication, although you can ever overcome that with some clever compression. The advantage of that is when you make a query, it doesn't actually have to hit that other table because that information has already been copied over there, right? So it's a super fast querying. This database is stored in your own data center, you said? Yeah, we have essentially a co-location facilities. We have two in the Bay Area in Fremont where we have basically a bunch of, we have a lot of machines that are just hand-built here at DiffBot and then we, we rack them there. We also do use cloud services um, to handle auto-scaling for the uh, automatic APIs. So we try to serve as much of the load off of our bare metal, but uh, we have sensors that can detect periods of high load, spin up VMs on the cloud on GCE and AWS to catch that load, and then scale back down when it's not needed. What's the motivation for running your own machines? We did like a just kind of the, the cost-benefit analysis and... Uh, the payback period is measured in months, basically, uh, from, from running our own machines. Uh, another reason is for some of the machine learning workloads that we have, uh, our typical machine, uh, to give you a, an idea of what our build-out looks like, is basically like a 48-core and has, you know, like 32 drive bays, each 4 terabyte SSDs times 32 rated together, and about a terabyte of RAM, and with some with multiple GPUs. So the, the, they're pretty large machines, and you can't really rent uh, uh, instances like this right on, on GCE or AWS currently. And this is just because you have weird querying semantics? Is that ultimately, like, you need to serve these queries really quickly because they're, they're hitting this knowledge graph that's mm. that's built oh, in a it's, weird it's, way? No, it's not because of the querying, actually. It's, it's because of the machine learning pipeline that actually builds it, right? So oh. this whole process of taking web pages and building a knowledge graph involves a lot of computer vision, a lot of natural language processing, right? A lot of determining is this entity the same as that entity, you know, and fusion. Uh, a lot of those algorithms just require high amounts of memory and compute. Wow. I love the fact that you're running your own hardware, too. It's just like a big ball of heresy uh, is your business. So the actual database itself, do you store that in in these machines, too? Mm-hmm. That That is, too, yeah. So... The data center, what it looks like is essentially a whole bunch of different farms, right? Diffbot is pretty much similar to like a Google scale operation. Uh, we don't have quite their employee headcount, but it's all these different farms of, of servers that have some function, right? We have a, a farm that performs rendering. We probably run one of the largest rendering deployments, right? Because uh, we're basically not just reading the HTML of the web, we're actually rendering in a browser all, all the pages on the web. And so we have farms and machines that just do that. Uh, there are farms and machines that do natural language understanding. So take text and understand, okay, in this text, uh, what language is it? Is it English, Arabic, French, German? Uh, what are the entities in that text and the, the relationships involved between those entities? We have other farms that are responsible for looking at the pixels of an image and determining, okay, inside this picture, I have a MacBook Pro, right? Or inside this other picture, it's a picture of a cat. <laughs> you know, or in this other picture, it's a, it's a BMW you know, I3. And so it's, and, and so the, these are all kind of specialized computer vision algorithms, right, that, de- that detect these entities. Let's talk a little bit more about the, the computer vision and machine learning pipelines that are taking place on your own data center. So you've got this knowledge graph, it's, it's hosted 
in this data center and when you hit a page either you're 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 parsing the page yourself through your crawler or somebody has made a call to the ex- the extraction API and and you get data for free out of that uh, in any case you get this additional piece of data and maybe it's a new web page you can derive some meaning from it using NLP you find some entities in it and then you can you know you've got these entities and you and you can kind of look at the en- other entities in your database that you've already got and you can sort of figure out how to merge this new page and its entity information with your pre-existing model and you do this you also do this thing you call knowledge fusion which is where you assign truths using probability so you can sort of say you know facts about the page and and the entities on the page and how those entities relate to each other and how those entities might relate to other things in your database and you have a a probabilistic model for doing all of that which i love so much because you even just think about it in in today's world of of assigning truth to news stories and people you know people have this this binary outlook of real or fake news, or, or you talk about science, you know, you people have this binary outlook, like, does this drug work to treat cancer or not? And many times, the actual truth that we can say scientifically, objectively, is a probabilistic model. Yeah, it's, it's a not distribution, a, yeah. It, it's a distribution. It's not a binary model. And so I just love that that is baked in to the diff bot model of the world is like we're not sure about this we just have probabilities that we assign to it so tell me more about how you're doing this uh, model of of building the world and continually learning about it yeah so we we treat the internet as essentially the world's largest man-made sensor when you're combining and getting information from multiple pages there's many reasons there could be there are many factors of noise involved right there could be noise because one page, you know, is stale. That's just very practical, right? Like you, you might not have updated your LinkedIn profile in a while where your current company page has the correct current information about you. It just changes over time, right? Your school web page says you're still, you know, like in college, right? And also different pages have different aspects of an entity, right? Like the, your Instagram account is going to have very different information than your, your professional CV. And there could be errors, just not necessarily uh, malicious errors, like, you know, to the degree of like some, you know, Russian troll farm, but very benign errors, just like uh, there could even be errors in extraction, right? So you have all these possible sources of potential noise or difference. You might have in a product, you know, on one page, it says this product is five ounces, another page says it's 5.2 ounces, right? Uh, how do you believe that, right? So, uh, you know, which one is, do, you, do you believe and, and put confidence in, right? So. It's much the same problem a human has to do when they're using Google, right? You query for something, but then you have to read all these pages and then sort of like you have to synthesize the information about all these pages to, to come up with a clear picture of, of what you really believe, right? So we call this process knowledge fusion. And we have something akin to like a page rank kind of algorithm, which recursively assigns like a trust to origins that have a history of producing true facts and things, origins that are trustworthy, you know, we assign greater weight to their, their facts as well, right? So it would take, if there was some new source or new, you know, like gave an example earlier of Wikipedia, you know, Wikipedia has a lot of good factual information about it and they've been around for a while. So the algorithm would naturally assign much more trust if that fact was produced from Wikipedia than like a brand new, you know, WordPress blog that just, that just came up like, you know, last month. However, if it got enough signals from, you know, these new sources, it, it could eventually 
overweigh this kind of like prior and um it's very similar to just you know how the scientific process works right if you have a preponderance of evidence you can definitely you can definitely counteract kind of like the inherent prior trust of an origin the other kinds of things you can do in knowledge fusion are to actually use your knowledge graph so for example if there was some page out there on the web that said you know like mike tongue lives on the planet Venus. We know in the knowledge graph that Mike Tung works at DiffBot. DiffBot is in the Bay Area. It's in Mountain View, California. California is in the United States, which is on the planet Earth. Uh, Earth and Venus are, are millions of miles away. So it's very unlikely that you know I commute millions of miles uh, each day from my home planet of Venus to Earth, right? So you can use like things like ontological reasoning as well, logical uh, reasoning over the knowledge graph in order to discount you know certain spurious facts. So it's a, it's a quite an active research area. What we're trying to do is we're not so much trying to weigh in on these more like kind of subjective topics of the day. Uh, these are all pretty much facts that are objective statements, you know, that 99 of 99 humans would agree, you know, that this person, you know, has this gender, works at this company. We're, we're not, you know, trying to determine people's preferences or these more other or sentiment or these kind of more subjective measures, right? So it's, it's easier to validate. But these rules around uh, truth probability, so for example, something like you said where you might have information about, uh, like a, coming from a Wikipedia article versus a WordPress site that was put up yesterday. The Wikipedia article has been around for you know 10 years. Maybe you've got a lot of traffic data around it. Uh, maybe you've got a lot of citation data around it. You could do a page rank kind of thing in order to understand its its trustworthiness. But ideally, you would like to be able to have machines derive these rules, these trust-based rules, rather than uh, hand-defining the trust-based oh, yeah. rules like, you know, oh, this page has been around for 10 years, therefore we, we trust it more than a page that's been around for one year. So when you think about this truth, system this this probability of truth system is there a way to to have a, a deep like a deep learning model for assigning probabilities to to facts and, and, and truths no engineer like hand codes that we trust wikipedia right it's the fact that there's this sort of recursive definition right like you know uh, the original page rank paper basically the reason we trust wikipedia is because it has a history of generating facts that were determined as true and is corroborated by other sources, right? And so therefore, it gets sort of like more truth weighting to it. And because it has more truth weighting, then it can also uh, give more truth weighting to other to other sources. So it's just it's similar to um, how PageRank initially worked, right? It, no one defined that any website was more important. But if it got a lot of backlinks, you know, from other sites uh, across a diversity of places that were also important, then then you could also then you could infer using machine learning that that was important. So the kind of truth that it converges to is sort of like the consensus of what like the most well-informed person would arrive at, you know. But it's obviously possible for everyone in the world to just be wrong about something, right? And uh, we just discover later that this wasn't true. We're just trying to meet the bar of, of human quality, you know. Google has a knowledge graph. I I heard. You say in a talk, I think it was your talk at Strata, that your knowledge graph is 500 times larger than Google's knowledge graph? Yeah, that's right. First of all, I would say, you know, you should always take these counts with like a grain of salt, you know, just just like when we were um, 
in kind of the first search wars, you know, people would talk about whether Bing is larger or whether Google is larger or WebIndex. It has, I think the much more important metric is does any given knowledge graph have the entities that you care about in it, right? For your particular use case, right? If you are, you know, doing sales, you're building an app, you're doing um, market research, is that universe of entities that you're concerned about in the knowledge graph, right? If you look at the Google knowledge graph, which is basically that panel that shows up on certain queries on the right-hand side, you'll notice, you know, it's pretty obvious that most of those entities uh, come from Wikipedia, right? And Wikipedia is essentially an encyclopedia of the celebrities, right? Or the famous people, uh, what we call those head entities. I don't know if, you know, you or I have Wikipedia entries about us, you know, or or your family or, or coworkers or kind of the day-to-day -day people that you interact with, you know, in your job, the kind of people that you might be doing business with, might be recruiting, might be your customers. Generally, none of those people have Wikipedia pages, right? I would say probably less than 1% of those people that you interact with daily have, have Wikipedia pages. Uh, and it applies to other entity types too. The products that you interact with, the, the places and restaurants you go to. I'm not sure that the, you know, Chipotle down the street uh, from where we are at our office has a Wikipedia page. So, but all of those entities I just mentioned are actually in the Diffbot knowledge graph because they all have web presences and we're able to extract from them and fuse them and put them in as entities. So we did our um, own sort of benchmarking, taking the universe of these entities and querying whether they were in the Google Knowledge Graph versus ours, you know, and found, you know, that uh, significantly less than 1% of, you know, are in the Google Knowledge Graph. So Google, do they offer the kinds of things that you offer as a service? Do they have the, uh, some kind of extraction API or like a knowledge API? No, they don't have any sort of extraction API at all. The Knowledge Graph API they have is severely handicapped. It just returns back the name and description of an entity. And these are generally Wikipedia articles. And there's no, you can't get the properties or facts about those entities. Yeah. If you are looking for an open source knowledge graph, the best one I can recommend is, is Wikidata, which is a crowdsourced structured knowledge graph that is produced by the Wikimedia organization, the same folks that do Wikipedia. Okay. couple more questions. You do use cloud for uh, some things like serving API requests and scalability Maybe you use it for fault tolerance or backups. Can you tell me more about your interaction between the the cloud and your data center? Yeah. So like I said, we try to serve most requests off of our bare metal because that's the most efficient way of doing things and most cost effective. But there's because we have an on-demand service, which is this, this extraction API, there are periods where um, we just don't have enough physical hardware to serve you know all of those requests with a certain latency guarantee. So... What we do is we use the cloud primarily for auto-scaling the farms. So we've written scripts that can detect the machine load and can spin up virtual machines really quickly to match the, the load that's coming in. And then when it detects that load has leveled off, then we'll scale back down. So I think every, you know, every 30 seconds to every minute, machines are scaling up and down. Okay, final question. This is another thing you talked about a little bit at Strata, but you have ideas about how knowledge work will change in the future, particularly pertaining to, you know, how maybe white collar jobs, white collar knowledge work jobs will evolve and the role that a knowledge graph might play. Can you share a little bit about that vision for the future that you have? 
Yeah. So what, you know, as a, as a summer job back in high school, you know, I used to work as a data entry person uh, in, in a call center doing fulfillment for Bell South, right? Which is like, a, like AT&T. And so at the lowest levels of knowledge work, it's just about gathering information and entering information. And, you know, it really aligns with our mission to try to automate some of this sort of knowledge front work as much as possible. I think human beings should be using their brain power to derive insight from information, right? And think of new ways of getting information rather than spending upwards of 30% of their day just um, entering in information in various databases and, and keeping these databases up to date, you know, as the world changes. So we have a really strong belief that in the future, because of technologies like Diffbot that essentially automate knowledge acquisition, there'll be the relationship between these systems and, and human beings are, is gonna be one where these systems are doing most of the heavy lifting you know, gathering the information, using the internet as the world's largest sensor to, to update, you know, your CRM, your sales database, your recruiting database, your inventory and parts databases. And humans will essentially just be managing, the, you know, these autonomous systems and directing them as to how to get, get the information that they need rather than, than doing the, the data entry themselves. So that's kind of uh, what we're starting to see already, actually, um, as, as the knowledge graph is being used in many sorts of intelligent applications. So we see, yeah, kind of this, this trend continuing. I think it's gonna leave knowledge work in a much better place. You know, like analogy is think of the agricultural revolution, right? Where in the past people were actually manually plowing and tilling the fields, right? Whereas a modern farmer is actually just managing, you know, like John Deere tractors that are GPS guided and, you know, uh, and, and the machines are doing like the heavy lifting. I think the same is going to be true of knowledge work. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on the show and thanks for working on a really cool product that I have made good use of myself. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. This has been really fun. Wow.